Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to what may very well be the last coronavirus episode of Buker and Friends, part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, you can hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young-onset Parkinson's called Rebound. It will be available to the public April 6th, but pre-ordered copies are available now on Amazon. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. I introduced this episode as potentially the last coronavirus episode of Buker and Friends, not because the pandemic is over, it's not, or because I've been vaccinated, I haven't been, or because I'm leaving the podcast world, I'm not. It's potentially the last because the podcast is changing names to... On the Ball with Rick Buecher. I feel like I should have a trumpet blast every time I say the new name so it catches on, but I don't have those bells and whistles, so you're going to have to use your imagination. Anyway, as you may have noticed, my co-hosts, Will Blackman and Ryan Hollins, haven't appeared with me for quite some time, and there are several reasons. One, the football-centric episodes weren't really resonating with all of you the way I had hoped. No one's fault, but that was primarily why I wanted to partner with Will, Super Bowl champ with the Giants. I loved working with him, and I wish him all the luck in the world with his burgeoning wine business. I would do something again with him in a minute. This just wasn't the right vehicle. Uh, Both Ryan and I, meanwhile, have a lot of irons in the fire, and it was a challenge to nail down recording time. So, ultimately, said let him pursue his other interests as well. The other influence is that all of you seem to enjoy the Buker Friendless episodes as much or more than when I have a guest or co-host. They are far more time intensive for me, but I enjoy doing them. So I thought I'd go in that direction. A blend of me presenting you with some unique thoughts or insight about the NBA and conversations with the various players, coaches, executives, and personalities I know in and around the league mixed in. So all of this means there will be new cover art for the podcast. 
along with the new title. But other than that, everything should pretty much be the same. Uh, by the way, thanks in advance for hanging with me. All right, so on to the meat of this particular episode. As we come out of the All-Star break with the Brooklyn Nets adding Blake Griffin and quite possibly Andre Drummond as I record this, hasn't been officially announced. There's some rumors out there. I'm personally a little bit shocked that he would go in that direction, but anticipating what Andre Drummond is going to do is a little bit difficult. And we've seen this before where guys gang up. First thought is, why is nobody going to L.A. and the Lakers? But if you bring up that guys don't necessarily love playing with LeBron, it immediately becomes you hate LeBron. It's not so much that. It really isn't. It's just, as I've written and said before, LeBron sucks all the oxygen out of the room. And at this point, guys would really rather, rather go someplace else and beat him than go and join him because... They know that if a championship won, is won, it's going to be all about LeBron. And if a championship is not won, it's going to be all about the guys who didn't do enough for LeBron. That's just whether you buy that narrative, whether you agree with that narrative, that has consistently been the narrative. And guys are aware of it. So if they win a championship, if they're lucky enough to win a championship, then they want the credit for it. There's also it's a little more nuanced in terms of playing with LeBron, uh, depending on what kind of player you are. Uh, you're going to play the LeBron way. Decisions are going to be made by LeBron. And you can accommodate that, or, uh, and some guys just struggle accommodating that. Or you are not going to play or not going to have the same role, or you, know, you have to conform. That's the bottom line. Anyway, uh, the focus at this point of the season naturally turns to which teams have shown themselves to be contenders versus pretenders at this point in the season. It's somewhat extinctual. I mean, we do this every year because normally the All-Star break comes right before the stretch run with about two months left and less than 30 games remaining in an 82-game regular season. That, though, is not where we're at. We're at the exact halfway mark of a 72-game season, which means there's still time for teams to rise and fall, still time for chemistry to form or disgruntlement to arise, and that if a certain superstar appears tired, it's at the halfway mark, not the three-quarter pole. These are all things to consider about how the circumstances are a little bit different. But all that said, it's still interesting to look at how the season has unfolded and who has risen to the top and why. And one of the number one things that has been dominant, I said this before All-Star Weekend, was that the three-point shot, three-point shooting, has become the mark, the difference maker, with teams across the league. Lakers were rolling at the beginning. Why? They were shooting the three well. LeBron was shooting the three particularly well. The Utah Jazz have led the league from the very start. Why? Because they've been shooting the three as well or better than anybody else, and they defend the three fairly well. Every team that has surprised us or is doing well can 
trace their success back to some element of the three-point shot. The New York Knicks, for example, far better than we expected. They don't shoot it particularly well, but they defend it very well. The Phoenix Suns, we expected them to be good. I don't know that we expected them to be this good. Why are they? They shoot their top 10 in three-point shooting percentage, and they defend it extremely well. The Bucks, conversely, not living up to what we expect. Why? They're shooting the three okay, not defending it well. Not as well as they have in the past. There's only one team that defies this. Actually, two. The Philadelphia 76ers and the Los Angeles Lakers. Sixers are right in the middle when it comes to both shooting it and defending it. Obviously, they play a bigger lineup, but they still play at a relatively fast pace thanks to Ben Simmons. Simply Simmons lives inside the three-point arc, and so you would expect that their numbers are not going to be as gaudy when it comes to the three-point shot. The Lakers don't shoot it well either. Last I checked, they were 24th in the league in three-point percentage. While there's three teams in the Western Conference that are in the top five in percentage, Clips, Jazz, and Nuggets. And two of those, the Jazz and the Nuggets, defend the three better than the Lakers. Now, the one thing that the Lakers and the Sixers have in common when it comes to the three-point shot is that they're pretty good at limiting the number of shots that their opponents take from range. So it appears that when they put their minds to it, they can play pretty good defense in terms of running people off the line. They just don't always and leave people open so that when they are making or taking those shots, they are making them. I bring all of this up because we obviously saw All-Star Weekend where the three-point shot dominated both the game, more than 60% of the shots taken in the game were three-pointers. And for my money, the three-point shooting contest was far and away the most entertaining and competitive. And I mean, adding the the long uh, neon green or glowing green balls from, I don't know how far that was, 30, 35 feet, uh, was a great addition. But those were made rather routinely. And guys were taking them and making them almost effortlessly. And the corner shots were almost a, a given. That's where the game has gone, without question. So, it used to be said, it's probably still there's some old heads out there that are still saying it. You win by the three, you die by the three. It's never been less true than now, at least for the regular season. And the question is, will that carry over to the postseason? Now, my inclination is to say no, that the game always becomes a little more physical and slower, and it's a little harder to pass up layups for threes or launch shots from 30 feet in a playoff game. Why? Because the pressure and importance and there is no tomorrow unless we win aspect results inherently in more conservative play. Nobody wants to take that dumb shot that reckless shot, that quick shot, that ends up shifting a game. Making the mistake that costs a game or will be looked at as having cost a game and thereby a series and thereby a potential championship. It's the way it's always been. Now, 
one reason why I hesitate uh, is because things being a certain way doesn't mean it always will be that way. I've learned to accept that. I've learned to accept that so much has changed with the NBA game that believing tried and true principles, the things that I learned to be true by observing the league over the first 10, 15 years of covering it, uh, believing in those or holding to those too long has led me to a few misdiagnoses, if you will, over the last few years. Teams that, for example, teams that have never been in the playoffs together winning a title the first time out. That simply didn't happen. There was always a baptism of fire. Teams that were became champions had to build their way there, and they had to do it with a certain continuity. You certainly didn't change out your superstar and win a championship, as the Raptors did with Kawhi Leonard. Uh, or that experience in general is essential. Postseason experience. Nobody can perform well in the postseason unless they've been through it and they find out how tiring and exacting it is. Well, the Heat disproved that getting to the finals last year with Tyler Harrow and Duncan Robinson playing huge roles. And I just look at the statistics overall. First of all, uh, I don't have a specific uh, analytic that defines this, but we are seeing 20-point, 30-point leads swing back and forth within the course of a game. Normally, if you fell behind by 25 or more in a game, you might fight your way back, but there was no way in hell you were winning it, more often than not. It was just, it took too long. It was too tiring. You couldn't fall into a hole that deep and still expect to win the game. Now it happens all the time. It goes, you'll have a 25 point deficit and then suddenly that that team that's behind will be up by 20 and still may lose the game having it go the other way. That, that's been the impact of the three-point shot. Results in quicker shots, more shots, more possessions, and obviously more points scored in a shorter period of time. And quicker runouts on the long rebounds. I was astonished. I didn't know this coming into the podcast, but I looked this up. And I, I, just for examination's sake, to, to get a grasp on just how much things have changed. And I don't know if anything captures it better than this. Ten years ago, the top teams in the league, Orlando was at the top, I think New York was second, averaged 25 threes a game. Today, right now, this season, no team, not a single team, is averaging fewer than 27 threes a game. That's how dramatic this has changed. And this is why I hesitate to dismiss the idea that the three-point shot and the ability to shoot the three will be minimized in the postseason because teams have become so comfortable making it a part of their game and players have become so comfortable taking them that a three-point shot is no longer an edgy shot I mean, maybe maybe pulling up at the logo but even those it seems as if they don't carry the same weight 
or pressure. And so if we're going to go by the old tried and true, you chalk it up right now. Philadelphia 76ers are going to meet the Los Angeles Lakers in the finals. Lakers are number one in defensive efficiency. Philadelphia 76ers are number two. They might get there in different ways, and it would be an interesting contrast in styles because the Lakers are not last year's Lakers. They are playing a small ball version of the game by necessity, by virtue of their roster. And the Philadelphia 76ers, meanwhile, are playing big ball. Uh, Still a decent pace, but big ball nonetheless. The difficulty in completely buying that that's how it's going to go, because that's the way it's always been, is that we have teams constructed so different. It used to be that there would always be at least one guy, your big, who couldn't shoot the three. So you force the ball to him, maybe at the elbow, maybe in the post, I mean, you'd even be good with him having to work his way down, back his way down into a shot. Because meanwhile, you're sprinting the other direction and you're getting something at the rim or a three-pointer. That being the strategy for teams like the current Lakers playing small ball. But that's not how teams are constructed now. The Nets just went out and got Blake Griffin to back up Jeff Green. So they have not one, but two guys playing center who can shoot the three the brooklyn nets can literally go six seven deep with guys who can shoot the three 35 percent or better that's killer you can't leave anybody and you got a couple guys who can put the ball on the floor and attack the rim so there's no real answer there and sure you can trade threes for twos and we've seen with the houston rockets that not work but Even the Rockets were not constructed like this. Not with all of these bigs or guys playing the big position who shoot the three this well. Well, Let's face it, B.J. Tucker, great. Defending bigs, although still undersized. Heroic effort on his part. But he's primarily a corner three-point shooter. It's not the case with Blake or with Jeff Green. So it will be interesting to see how this dynamic ultimately plays out. There's also the absence of fans in the buildings. And I can't help but feel that that may have something to do with the crazy tilt toward offense and the lousy defense we've seen all season. I've been saying that teams play good defense or this team defends the three well. It's all relative. There's not a whole lot of good defense being played in part because we haven't had a preseason, not a normal preseason. There's not a whole lot of time for practice. And the way the game is being officiated now makes it practically impossible. You can't close out and defend hard on threes against the best shooters because you risk giving up three free throws. So you're either giving up an open look. And look, as a shooter, you know that. This guy can't defend me tight. Because all I have to do is lean in a little bit, lean to the left, or throw up my arms. And at the very least, it's going to be a foul and sight out of bounds, even if they don't call it a three-point shot. There's no loss, relatively no loss, in playing fool the referee at the three-point line. Defenders know it. The shooters know it. And it's why one of the biggest reasons I struggle with the game. And it will be disappointing to see 
if they suddenly change that in the postseason. If suddenly they get incredibly tougher on what they call at the three-point line. Because teams have been able to position themselves and play a certain way, and now you're going to change the rules in the postseason. That just doesn't feel right. I'd rather have them play that way, but to pull the rug and to do it different then uh, bothers me. But back to the point. Without fans in the buildings, there's no question that that affects defense more than it does offense, uh, and at least in a positive way. Having a screaming building makes offense more difficult, makes it harder to concentrate, because fans screaming and clapping provides energy, and that energy is easy to convert into defensive intensity. But it takes mental discipline to temper and stay poised taking a shot or weaving through traffic or passing out of a double team. Fans fans generally cheer and get excited after a basket. But when they're cheering defense, it's however many seconds lead up to the shot that they're making all that noise, and then they get even louder later in the shot clock, I'm, as you guys well know. But uh, there's other, so a few other things too. I mean, we're also dealing with some very real changes in the conditions under which games are being played. The normal routines and training that guys uh, have have been disrupted or non-existent. And trust me, the reason these players play at a level, when you see, and I, if, you, if you're any kind of an athlete, if you've done anything with sports, and you watch how fast the game is today, how athletic the players are, they really, the, the number of guys that can play at that speed for that long uh, is really just extraordinary to me. I mean, there's a reason that these guys, it's not like that we found some superhuman subset out there. It's that they are training in a way that is different from you and I. They're not going to 24-hour fitness, trust me. They have access to equipment and trainers, and they can push themselves to play and perform at those levels normally. Now, those, those, uh, the access to all that has been curbed uh, because of COVID restrictions, limitations on travel and training centers and interacting with anyone not considered essential team personnel over the last six months has put a crimp in all that. And where that's really going to show up is at the defensive end. Let's face it, it's human nature. If there's a place that you're going to uh, you're going to expend less energy, it's going to be on defense, not offense, unless you play for Tom Thibodeau, as the New York Knicks have demonstrated. And that's probably a conversation for another day. Now, at this point, perhaps you're asking yourself, okay, Buker, so the three-point shot, is the wave, the new wave, and the Brooklyn Nets are embracing that as much as anyone, why would they have interest in Andre Drummond? Doesn't that run counter to the idea that you want to put five guys on the floor who can knock down three-pointers? No, not really, because the fact of the matter is there are going to be times where they may have to play teams like the Philadelphia 76ers who play bigger, and you have to be able to counter that. And so I don't know how much Andre Drummond is going to play. 
I still believe that the Nets are going to try to play small and fast and shoot threes as much as they possibly can. That is their strength. That is what you go with. But there are times where you need to get a stop. You need a big body. You need a breather. You need to be able to play a little bit slower. It's not always wise to look at the box scores and compare what one big did to the other and determine who won the battle. Because obviously in some cases they play completely different roles. And sometimes the job of the other big isn't necessarily to outscore or out-rebound or out-shot block the other big. It's to affect him in a way to make him earn whatever he gets so that when the other team goes to its strength, when an up-tempo team like the Nets go to their strength, Embiid is just a little step, he's a step slower. He's a little more reluctant to fully rotate. He now is a little short on the mid-range jumper or on his three. It's, it's playing the whole four quarters. And if you play small all the time and fast, yeah, look, if Steve Nash and Mike D'Antoni, excuse me, if Doc Rivers is smart, he can find a way to manage, to manage Joel Embiid so that he doesn't get fully fatigued. It's having him on the floor and having him have to work both get up and down and work at both ends of the floor, have to work offensively to get to his shots. When he doesn't have a big body on him and he can just catch it in the paint, turn and score, not a whole lot of energy expended there. So I understand why the Nets would want Andre Drummond. I'm not sure I understand why Andre Drummond would want the Nets because I believe the Lakers would like to recapture more of what they were last year and to play more big ball than they're able to play at this point. They already play at a slower pace this year than they did last year, even though they are playing small ball. Some of that is just by virtue of you didn't have Dennis Schroeder for a stretch. You haven't had Anthony Davis for a stretch. LeBron has had to do a lot. And trust me, he's not pushing the tempo. He's not pushing the pace. You watch a Lakers game and how often he's standing way above above the three-point arc and he's simply looking for cutters he's looking for guys to swing the ball to to make a deft pass but he's very judicious about the times that he puts the ball on the floor and he attacks or even works below the free throw line playing against smaller bodies he doesn't want to post up on a regular basis that takes a lot of energy to do that the fact that lebron james is 36 years old really hit me watching the all-star game now i know he came into it saying didn't really want to be there and people are anticipating that he wasn't going to put a whole lot into it but it also wasn't his kind of all-star game first of all the three-point shooting is not a strength of his and i was astonished that he was shooting it as as well as he was at the beginning of the year because it's he he's off balance when he shoots it and now he's really leaning to one side after he missed the first couple, it was clear. He's like, this ain't my game. And while he had a couple of nice dunks, it was still, it was just looking at the live bodies. Paul George, Giannis Antetokounmpo, obviously, Zach Levine. There was just, 
there was a distinct difference there. And look, I know it's an all-star game, and I know LeBron's not taking it seriously, but there's just certain moves in activity where you where a guy lets his athleticism go, and you see it. And I, I don't fault LeBron in any way for any of this. I'm just saying that it became starkly apparent to me that he's 36 years old, and he's not the crazy athlete that he's always been. His game has evolved in other ways. His mid-range shot, and I kind of have to laugh, DeMontis Sabonis took a mid-range jumper. It may have been the only one in the game. That's Sabonis's game. And that is now a surprisingly big part of LeBron's game. He is so confident in that shot. Uh, turnaround, baseline, wherever. She hits it consistently, and that's the kind of shot that you need more so in the postseason, or at least you've needed it in the past. And that's where I will be very interested to see how the game's officiated, what the pace is, how much the three-point shot is a factor. Because as of right now, LeBron, while very much a new-age player, has an old-school game. And if... The postseason is played the way the postseason has been generally in the past with defense and being able to get to your spots, being able to score from the mid-range as much as from the three-point line or at the rim. Then LeBron James and the Lakers should be in good shape. But if the All-Star game and the first half of the season are any harbinger that the game has changed to the point now where the three-point shot is simply an invaluable piece. Maybe not even the biggest piece, but simply an indispensable piece of a team being successful. Lakers don't have that. LeBron does not have that. There are multiple teams that have that. And it's just a matter of whether the scales have tilted to the point where that shot has taken over. And we will see. I'm not ready to make a prediction on that quite yet. One last thing I want to hit before I go, and that is Kyrie Irving. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And... His relative, I mentioned this on my IGTV channel, his relative invisibility and uh, non-consequential presence in the game. And I couldn't help but juxtapose him with Damian Lillard and Steph Curry and their roles and the joy with which they play the game. And quite honestly, and I mentioned this again, uh, I've discussed this before on my IGTV channel about how Damien and Steph have their social justice causes and their outside interests and they 
they seek to be more than just basketball players. And I admire them for that. As I do Kyrie in the charitable causes that he has and his attempts to uh, discuss mental health, it, those are noble pursuits. It's simply the way that Kyrie does it that is so off-putting and counterproductive. And I don't know if it makes me angry or sad, but nonetheless, Kyrie is wasting this platform and this opportunity. And I, and I suppose I'm not, I'm sad about that. I'm angry with those who immediately want to wave the flag and say, how dare you? How dare you criticize Kyrie? Look at all the great things that he does. And I struggle with that because just because someone does a good thing doesn't mean that they are now given the allowance of being a jackass in other ways. And that's what I get from Kyrie, to be honest with you. And the perfect example of it doesn't have to be that way and it's actually counterproductive are Damian Lillard and, and Steph Curry. Because they have outside interests. They have a lot of pressure. They get a lot of attention. And yet, I have found them both to be incredibly courteous and thoughtful, whether it's with the media or in any situation with their teammates. I don't get that from Kyrie. And I suppose what really put me over the top is uh, apparently somebody asked him uh, after the game what he planned on doing for the remainder of the All-Star break. And his response was, minding my own business and making sure I'm helping humanity. Now, okay. <laughs> even, even if he would have said, uh, minding my own business and, and I hope to help humanity, would be better than this. Making sure I'm helping humanity. Because basically that's saying to the other person, whoever asked the question, uh, you should be helping humanity too. It's just, it doesn't have to be that way. Kyrie gets in his own way. The whole push for Kobe Bryant to be the new logo of the NBA. Kyrie put zero forethought into that and then compounded it by saying, we need to recognize the black kings that made this league. What he apparently is not aware of, and I think most people are not, is that there is some question as to whether the logo actually is Jerry West. Nobody's ever disputed it. But Terry Lyons, who worked for the league for a long time, had an interesting column recently where he pointed out that the logo actually, first of all, it was never definitively made in honor of Jerry West. People just made the assumption that it looked like Jerry West. But Terry Lyons pointed out a magazine cover on which Oscar Robertson is seen. And, and the silhouette of his body is strikingly similar. Now, we think of Oscar Robertson maybe as the more of a chunky guy that we've seen in retirement because so few people saw him play. But if you saw that photo and you saw him at his prime, then you know that he wasn't built all that different than Jerry West once upon a time. And it could very well be him. But the point is, it feels as if Kyrie immediately wants to make this a black-white thing. 
And I have no problem with the logo being changed. I have no problem with the logo more clearly representing uh, someone who's black. Because let's face it, that's predominantly uh, who is in the NBA, are black players. So would it be more fair for it to represent uh, black players? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't care. I have no problem with that. I have a problem with it being a specific player because if you make it Kobe, then what are you, why does he get that honor above Michael Jordan or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Larry Bird or Oscar Robertson or Elgin Baylor or Spencer Haywood? I mean, go down the line of players who have been instrumental one way or another on the growth of the league, why it is what it is. Kyrie didn't give any thought to that, and yet wants to be thought of as a thinker, as an out-of-the-box thinker. You can, you can think out of the box. You can bring up novel ideas. But if they're rather flimsy, or they are silly, or they can be knocked down with a mere two minutes of thought, then you're really not contributing anything instructive or meaningful. And what I struggle with, what I get angry about, are those who allow Kyrie that, who defend Kyrie. It's okay to ask for better. It's okay to ask for more if it's not there, no matter what the person may be doing in other avenues or in other ways doesn't mean we have to lower our standards because someone does one particular nice thing. All right, off the soapbox. That does it for this episode of Buker Friendless. Again, quite possibly the last episode of Buker Friendless, but we'll see. Please don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode... Uh, This is where I'm supposed to tell you what you have coming up. And I'll be honest, I have no idea. I may know tomorrow. I may know in a day or two, but I don't know right now. So I just simply ask you to meet me back here, same time. Apologies that this one is a little bit late and I've been off on my timing. A lot of TV work in the last couple of days. And so that's what slowed me down, but should be back on the beam going forward. In the meantime, as always... Thanks for listening. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.